Let's uh, come together and get started. And um, there are, um, so we're on Psalm 79, which is a short psalm compared to last week, only uh, 13 verses. And um, let me, um, so I'm trying to figure 40 minutes. We'll try and end around uh, the top of the hour. I'll pray and then I'm going to read the psalm. If you didn't get a copy of the handout and you want it, they're all out in the foyer, but Kyle's offered, if, if you don't have it, I'll be kind of marching through that to hand some out if, if you care to have one in front of you. Um, let's pray first, though. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. Be with us as we turn again to your Psalter. Help us to understand uh, this psalm and the other things communicated in it that apply elsewhere. And... Father, um, open up our eyes to see wonderful things from your word, we do pray in Jesus' name, amen. So if you didn't get a copy and you want one, why don't you just raise your hand and Kyle can come around and distribute it. Let me read this to you, uh, Psalm 79, I'll read from the ESV. Um, O God, a psalm of Asaph, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance, they have defiled your holy temple, they have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have been given the bodies, they have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heaven for food, the flesh of your faithful ones to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, uh, and there is no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked, derided by those around us. How long, O oh Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily towards us to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your namesake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. And let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of your neighbors, our neighbors, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. Uh, but we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount uh, your praise. So, um, uh, there's a number of things that this passage um, brings before our minds. Um, and so, I'd like to try and cover those, especially uh, talk about this issue that's a difficult one for some Christians to understand, namely imprecations in the psalm. An imprecation is like denouncing um, wished, wished for evil or revenge on, on your enemy, someone else, okay? And that, that's caused a lot of consternation for people trying to understand that, especially in light of the New Testament ethic that we shouldn't take revenge into our own hands and we ought to love our enemies and that kind of thing. So I'd like to get there and talk about that, but a few other uh, issues first. So I open up with this uh, illustration from Ingmar Bergman film called The Seventh Seal, Black and White. Uh, again, because we've been looking at the motif of silence over and over again in these psalms. And uh, this film by Bergman covers this, this night re 
turns from the Crusades with all kinds of questions about death and about um, violence and wickedness, and, and uh, he doesn't get many answers. It's a hard film to watch because, um, you know, the priest who's dressed in black is actually personified death, and the answer is, you know, God is silent. I don't have any answers for you, and so it's, it's kind of a depressing movie. Um, but it fits well as an illustration <laughs> for the book. And uh, so this, this, I've been trying to sensitize you all to get used to what form these psalms come in. This is a communal lament. You may have recognized its tone is very similar to Psalm 74, which we looked at, which is all about the desecrated sanctuary in, in Jerusalem, the enemies coming in and, and trampling uh, upon God's holy place. And um, so <clears throat> this is a communal lament very similar to that. Uh, you may have heard there the, the cry of lament, uh, how long, O Lord, and why, in verse 5. Um, <clears throat> Arnold Band, B-A-N-D, um, and his wife, they're Jewish, but they have produced these beautiful coffee table kind of books that are calligraphies of um, using calligraphy uh, in various parts of the Hebrew Bible. And they have one on the Psalms. And, um, and so Mr. Band says, few Psalms yield such rich evidence, it's on page one, of a great writing tradition as Psalm 79. A lament for the devastation of Jerusalem. The psalmist is familiar with many biblical texts, with the literature of Lamentations, perhaps even with the book of Lamentations itself. Uh, what is remarkable about the psalm is the author's ability to compress all these features of lamentation into a coherent poem. It's only 13 verses. Uh, I think that's true. And then when you open up the psalm, it reads, you can see again the same presenting uh, problem. Uh, direct your step to, to the perpetual uh, ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the, in the sanctuary. Um, so it's almost, Calvin's got a pretty good line here in his comments on this psalm. He says it's almost like nature has been inverted because now the pagan is coming into the sanctuary, not those who are faithful God-fearers, uh, but those who have desecrated the sanctuary uh, and uh, the inheritance of God uh, come in. So that's the presenting problem uh, with regards to the psalm. And um, um, if you turn on the next page, the second page, I have this quote from a commentator named Tate, T-A-T-E. You'll see there in, in a little bit smaller print that might be a good way to launch into some of the subjects and topics that this psalm fronts. So he says... You see the quote there, it, second paragraph quote, the psalm is full of anguish at the unspeakable things that the people have seen and the anger at those who are responsible for them. It's not pretty. It's not full of noble religious sentiments. It is too real for that. The people are too tired and confused to pretend. Instead, they tell God exactly what's on their hearts. They do not hide the pathos of this, their situation or the horror at the unmerited deaths of God's holy ones. Now, there's two things, so I use that as a foil to raise a couple questions. <clears throat> First of all, uh, he says it's not full of noble religious sentiments. Okay, is that true? Uh, secondly, uh, they're responding 
uh, with their horror at the unmerited deaths of God's holy ones. Okay, so I also want to ask questions about that. So this raises the whole issue. When, When Tate says that, basically he's identifying these prayers or imprecatory wishes on the part of God's people towards the enemies that, in his opinion, are unbecoming of a God-fearing Hebrew. Um, So, um, because it sounds like, at least at first read, as if they're saying, you know, and trying to take revenge into their own hands, uh, and even asking God's help to do that. (laughs) So, um, this raises this issue of imprecations uh, that I think it's helpful for people to uh, have some teaching on this, to to say, uh, try and get our arms wrapped around how to deal with these uh, difficult things. Um, so, for example, in our work on the Psalter Hymnal Committee, uh, there are some people that do not think that certain psalms in our Psalter should be sung in Christian worship uh, because of these imprecations. And um, there's some people that weren't happy that we were putting all 150 psalms in uh, the new Trinity Psalter Hymnal. Um, and um, so these are important questions about how, how do we uh, wrestle with this. Look, for example, at verses 6 and 7. I think it's 6 and 7. My versification in this paper may be a little bit different in your Bible, but you can look on the paper, which is kind of a literal translation, or you can look in your ESV or Bible, whatever you care to. But it, notice it says, Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Uh, And then later on, verse 12, Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. Okay, well, that's not the way your pastor prays from the pulpit on Sunday morning, okay? If you listen carefully, I'm actually praying that God uh, would fulfill those things revealed in his word, that he doesn't take delight in the perishing of the wicked. Of course, he allows that to happen for their own sin, um, as the confession says. Uh, but also there are numerous places in the Holy Scripture that says that God takes no delight in the perishing of the wicked. And so we pray, O oh Lord, open up their eyes that uh, mankind, human beings more generally, may receive the gospel and respond accordingly. So how do you get these things to uh, cohere um, you can see in the next paragraph, I'm actually citing again for other reasons. Um, now, I'm going to make some political comments, but I'm not going to make political opinions. That's, uh, is that Phil? Who was that? <laughs> uh, so um, that, that is inappropriate for a minister, in my opinion. So uh, the only authority I, I have when I am invited by the elders to teach you or preach to you is what we call uh, declarative authority. I have no legislative authority. So it's wrong for me to impose my political opinions on your conscience. Um, So the only thing that the Lord Jesus Christ allows me to impose on your conscience is uh, what he tells me I can impose on your conscience, uh, which are certain things, you know, as far as ethics and that kind of thing. But with regards to political opinions, over which well-meaning Christians may differ, um, I have no business touching that. And um, so that's, that's an aberration uh, and, and an abuse of the pulpit uh, or the lectern, okay? 
that's why the Reformation was started by eating sausage. Did you know that? Uh, because during Lent, uh, Zwingli and some of the brothers thought that it was inappropriate for the Roman Catholic Church to tell us what we could eat or not eat, so they had a sausage-eating celebration during Lent. Uh, or like yesterday, I was rock climbing with a friend who married a Roman Catholic woman, uh, and uh, so I told him I was bringing beef jerky for our lunch. Uh, and uh, so anyway... Um, so remember, the Lord Jesus Christ is, is only uh, Lord of the conscience. Enough on that. But if you notice at the bottom, I'm not making a political opinion here. I'm just sharing this to be illustrative of how some people in the world handle these imprecatory statements. So remember, these people are Jewish. So they talk about how we ought to understand this shafoch hamachta, which is pour out your wrath. Um, so, um, how, how, how does a Jew understand this? Well, a Jew understands this uh, with reference, not all Jews, but maybe some Jews, to the reports of uh, Hamas and Hezbollah tossing missiles over into uh, um, Israel. Uh, so, notice what the quote at the bottom says. Our challenge is not to flinch from the, test of, uh, from the text of Shafuch Hamata, uh, while we might prefer to read psalms that soothe and heal with a gentle balm, some injuries simply do not respond to this kind of treatment. If we recoil at the text, we must remember that we should really be upset at violence and religious intolerance. Uh, difficult though they be, the words of Shafuch Hamata, pour out your wrath, remind us of the power of the psalms to empower, effect catharsis, and, yet to, and yes, to heal. Now, so... As Christians, we should always recoil at violence um, in the world in our day and age against uh, any ethnic group uh, that is uh, unmitigated and unjustified. Um, so, for example, Nazi swastikas or the whole project of the Nazis should just absolutely cause us to be repulsed. Um, and so should the violence and terrorist, you know, actions of a group like Hezbollah. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we should extend that uh, to the Palestinians generally. There are Christians in Palestine, just like there are Christians. This may be, sound really radical to some of you. Again, I'm not sharing my political opinion. I'm trying to only go so far as the Lord allows us to go. Um, but, you know, the fact of the matter is there are more Zionists in the United States than there are in Jerusalem. And uh, so it's a very complicated uh, issue. And uh, we shouldn't just condemn all of Palestine because they may be marked out in the news um, by, um, you know, these violent t uh, terrorist groups. There's a lot of Christians in Palestine that deserve our prayer and, and mercy and ministry, just like there's a lot of Christians in Israel as well. What's a better treatment? I think a better treatment is along these lines. Let me just keep talking on this, and, and then I'll pull back and ask you if there's some questions. So first of all, there's a classic essay by this um, man, Chalmers Martin. Uh, this is, um, I don't have the page numbers on here, but it's, it's quoted in the, in the paragraph that begins, there's a fairly extensive bibliography on the problem of imprecations in the Psalms. And there he says, uh, so there's, eight, there's about 18 either segments or whole paragraphs that have imprecations in the Psalms embedded, embedded there. You know, this, this kind of uh, 
very vengeful, if you will, um, saying or spirit. So Thomas Martin's saying, how do we make sense of that in light of what the Sermon on the Mount says? You know, turn the other cheek, uh, kind of New Testament ethic. Uh, so he says, well, first of all, they're expressions of the longing of an Old Testament saint for the vindication of God's righteousness. Okay, that fits here. Uh, and then he says, and there's a typo there, sorry, I already corrected it. Uh, they are utterances of zeal for God and God's kingdom. True enough. See, these fear-sounding utterances are an Old Testament saint's expression of his abhorrence of sin. Sure enough. And sometimes they are prophetic teachings as to the attitude of God towards sin and impenitent and uh, persistent sinners. True, okay? Um, However, I don't think that's completely satisfactory for New Testament Christians who are trying to understand how, you know, Am I binding your conscience inappropriately because, you know, Catherine and the elders have me choose the Psalms if I chose Psalm 133 without any instruction, uh, which says, you know, bash the babies against the wall of the Babylonians because it's a Psalm when they're, you know, uh, when, you know, um, should David be after me after the service or Dan because of that, you know? Uh, Give me a quick pink slip. Uh, (laughs) And... uh, you know, that's, that's a big question, right? So, um, so here's, here's, I think, even a better way, or maybe a supplemental way to what Chalmers Martin is saying, and that's that, okay, this is a picture of redemptive history. Okay, so this is the Garden of Eden. This is the fall. Uh, this is Noah, Noah's Arky Arky. Uh, this, this, is, uh, this, this is the uh, theocracy of Israel, okay? Um, so this is the patriarchal period before the theocracy. This is the post-exilic period afterwards. Um, so uh, notice I'll put a parenthesis around this, okay? Uh, <clears throat> this is the church age, okay? Here, this is the second coming of Christ. Notice there's only one line. Uh, so... Um, and then this is the New Jerusalem. So wherever there's a box, there is theocracy. And what I mean by theocracy is, I'm, don't just pour your common you know, English nuance into that or connotations. This is a coalescence of um, God's reign and realm, even externally. This is a conflation of cult. I don't mean like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses cult or Mormon cults. This is the way religion scholars talk about, um, you know, uh, any religious practice that has regular ritual and that kind of thing. So, you know, we could call our church a cult if we properly define that according to this. So cultic acts would be like what we were doing in worship between the, the call to worship and the benediction. Prayer, um, the ritual of the Lord's table, obviously, okay? Uh, and, um, and then culture is not just like highbrow performing arts. Culture is also um, anything that human beings set their hands to do in this horizontal world to live their lives. So it could be the practice of medicine. It could be uh, building cinder block walls. It could be providing insurance to cover the 
and protect the needs of uh, people and estates, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, as well as all those things that we usually think of when we think of culture with a capital C. Well, in Israel, all acts were a conflation of cult and culture at one and the same time. Just like in the Garden of Eden, uh, because this was a, a prototypical sanctuary where Adam was not just an agricultural farmer who had dominion over the land, he was also a priest that was responsible to protect uh, that from many outside unholy intruders, especially snake-looking ones, and you know, uh, who were shrewd. And so his first job when, when, when Satan came into the garden, he should have wielded a sword just like the Aaronic priest later on and said, you don't belong here, lopped off his head. And um, so, but there's a, there's a coalescence here, a, a conflation of uh, cultural acts and uh, um, vertical acts, um, trusting in God, okay? Um, and, and so every act that Adam and Eve did was either holy or not holy. Okay? The same thing, I'll explain this in a minute briefly. The same thing is the case in the theocracy. Take the book of Judges, or Joshua. So Adam and Eve are commanded, Adam and Eve, sorry. Uh, the, uh, the Judges, Joshua, you know, during that period, they're commanded to rid the land of all unholy inhabitants, including in some cities, not all cities, but including, this was called harem warfare. So they're actually commanded when they go in, not just to put them into the sword, but the women and the children as well, and burn the cities to the ground. Now there's no Geneva Convention here. <laughs> this, is, this is why so many people in the popular culture, if you just type in when you get home on the internet, Christian monotheism is dangerous and it leads to violence and war and bigotry. Uh, they, they don't know how to make sense of these kinds of, of passages. Okay? And so, you know, they think, oh, this is a violent God who knows, you know, knows no respect for pluralistic society and that kind of thing and, and uh, commands men to be butchers, you know, to, um, um, you know, kill men indiscriminately, women and children in some cases. Um, and now they're absolutely, you know, from, from our perspective of just war theory and, and New Testament ethic, uh, some of the things they were commanded to do was just shocking. Shocking. Including taking women as slaves or, you know, and conquered, you know, that's something that ISIS does. That's not something we do, Okay. But you can, no, you can find it in the Old Testament. You have to have a category for making sense of this. Okay? So the way to make sense of it is to draw an arrow from here to here. <laughs> so this entire kingdom period is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth and the eclipse of common grace. Because ever since the fall, um, we are to share the gospel indiscriminately. We're to believe that God restrains the wickedness of pagan people. They're not as wicked as they could be. Uh, there is such a thing called civic, civic righteousness that even kings like Abimelech don't sleep with Abram's wife because he has the fear of God, even though he's an unbeliever. That's common grace. That's God's grace restraining 
okay? Even the sin and wickedness of pagans. When you get to this period, this is a picture of uh, the kingdom to come, uh, when everything will be a theocracy again, when all acts will be a conflation or coalescence of um, um, cult and culture, so that there'll be an external realm that corresponds um, exactly to God's kingdom, okay? And so you think about that with regards to cherem warfare now, okay? And you say, um, um, you know, what will happen in the second coming of Christ? Well, according to Revelations from chapter five, verse on, chapter 5 on, the saints will be involved with Jesus Christ in his second coming in order to enact an eradication of all evil in the world. As shocking as this may sound, there will be an eclipse of common grace again, such that we, together with our Lord and liege, will take up the sword, so to speak, in holy war against all those who have not bowed the knee to um, Christ as King and Savior. Family members, friends, now is the day of salvation, but there is coming a day when that will be over. And then when, when, when Christ returns again, then there will be an eclipse of common grace, and, uh, and then he will establish the new heavens and uh, the new earth. So in this category, Israel is not behind the times. Israel is actually ahead of the times, okay? Um, so, um, and then you say, well, what about for New Testament believers? Well, for New Testament believers, as we look back upon these imprecatory comments, like even in this psalm, okay, pour out your rash, uh, what's going on there? Um, New Testament believers translate this or transcribe this into a higher key, uh, namely the key of the Lord's Prayer when we pray, thy kingdom come. So we don't pray, thy kingdom come now, but we're praying that uh, thy kingdom will come and be realized. Okay, Would that you would come and rectify all evil and um, gather all your elect and that uh, even... Um, the, um, the evil deeds of the wicked will ultimately glorify you, Lord. So this theocracy in Israel is one big intrusion. It's intruded into history. Um, one big intrusion, one big symbol of intrusion. So that as we see the end of the world, evil powers dispossess. So that's what was going on in um, the uh, Israelite theocracy as uh, well. And that's how one way you can make sense of these imprecations. So when the psalmist is praying these imprecations, um, or in Psalm 133, perhaps one of the most drastic examples, uh, where they're in exile and they're praying, uh, O Lord, bash the baby's heads against the walls, <laughs> which sounds shocking, uh, but um, these are recalcitrant unbelievers uh, who are symbolizing uh, the end of the world. So here at 587, 586, when, when uh, Jerusalem is conquered and the temple is uh, ravished, um, notice um, uh, 
they're, they're pl- praying these prayers because they're concerned about God's honor. They're concerned about ultimate holiness. But they're also concerned about that because of this particular unique covenantal epoch or time period in which they're placed, in which um, uh, all acts are holy, absolutely holy, or not. And, um, and therefore, their demonstration of asking that God's wrath be poured out on the nations is fundamentally different than, than uh, what we uh, do now, in, in, um, at least physically and concretely. We may pray the Lord's Prayer uh, for his kingdom to come, but now is the time of pity, now is the time of mercy, now is the time of common grace, uh, where we should be trying to win souls to Christ, uh, not call imprecations uh, down upon uh, their heads. Um, now, so that's dealing with the first thing, and then uh, the second thing, well, what about what Tate, you remember I began quoting Tate, and and he was saying that these poor Israelites, you know, what do they do, you know, for, uh, with regards to the unmerited deaths of God's holy ones? Uh, so they're, they're recoiling at the, at the horror of the unmerited deaths of God's holy ones. That's a quote. Well, is that the case? What did the exile ultimately symbolize? What did the desecration of the uh, exile ultimately uh, talk about? Well, if you look in Deuteronomy 31, verse 16, 17, and 18, Moses prophesied ahead of time that they would fail. It was an accomplished fact, a fait accompli, that they would um, turn their backs on, step out on their husband, namely the Lord, and they did that even at Mount Sinai on their wedding night. Right? When they built the golden calf. Sorry for being so blunt, but that's what the prophets talk about. They committed adultery on their wedding night. Spiritual adultery. And, I mean, think of the abhorrence of that. And then we looked at Psalm 78. At every, every turn in history, despite God's graciousness, they did the same. And so would we, uh, but for the grace of God. Okay? Uh, which constrains us. So, um, I demur from this statement. It wasn't unmerited. Okay? God warned them ahead of time that uh, if you play the harlot, if you keep doing this, uh, even though I'm patient with you, nevertheless, uh, you know, uh, your temple and your city will be desecrated and you will go into exile. That was the ultimate punishment. I think Calvin is more on the mark here when he says, they acknowledge an obstinacy of long standing in which they have hardened themselves against God, and this acknowledgement corresponds to the prophetic punishments. In other words, what was going to happen. For sacred history testifies the punishment of the captivity uh, that was postponed till God had experienced that the, their wickedness uh, was curable. So God constantly, constantly sent them the prophets. The last book in the Bible in the Hebrew arrangement of the biblical books is Second Chronicles. So they have a different order of the books than we do in our Christian church. That happened later. And actually, that's the order that Jesus recognized. Uh, it's called the Tanakh. The Torah, the Nevi'im, the former latter prophets, and then the writings of the Kutuvim. So the last book in the Hebrew Bible is Second Chronicles. And if you look in later, uh, chapter 36, you'll see God sent them prophets time and time again to appeal to them uh, you know, for obedience. 
time and time again, they spurned the prophets. They mocked them. They didn't listen to the word of God. And then ultimately, too late, no healing. That's, that's what Second Chronicles says. And so now, um, you know, Jesus speaks his indictment against the Jews, and then he turns to the fulfillment of Israel, namely uh, the church. And says, um, you know, so those godly Jews who do believe in the one true Messiah, they'll be included as my people, uh, as will the Goyim, those outside uh, the Jews to whom I will send my apostles. They'll be included as the elect of my people. That's what will make up the new Jerusalem. For not all who are of Jerusalem are truly of Jerusalem or Israel, as Paul says in Romans uh, 9 uh, to 6. Um, then with regards to divine silence, because we've been talking about that throughout these Psalms, notice how silence comes up here. Basically, silence comes up here where these enemies are um, recorded as saying, where is their God? Their God's not present, okay? And uh, that's how this Psalm deals uh, with uh, silence. Um, so divine absence, divine silence here, uh, serves as a kind of taunt, okay? But the good news is, um, remember back to Psalm 50, what does God require? He doesn't want external ritual. He doesn't want superficial worship. Remember, Psalm 50 sets forth the, the uh, lens through which we ought to understand all these psalms. What God requires is covenantal obedience and praise, Christ has provided that. Christ has given what was required. They didn't give it, uh, but Christ is the true son of Israel has. God does not want sacrifice. He requires obedience to the covenant and uh, praise. Uh, so that's uh, what uh, Christ has offered. Um, so uh, towards the bottom of the second to last page, Say, the people of God have the privilege and every trouble of looking to the early deliverances as pledges because undoubtedly there's, there's reference to the great arm of God here in the Exodus. Um, and so, uh, you know, last week we were looking at how <clears throat> the Exodus should have served as a reassurance to them uh, that God would act in the present and the future as he had in the past. So it really is historical. Um, so as pledges of those yet to come, and hence they possess a sure ground of confidence. So the world, when it prays, prays only as an experiment, having no connection with history. Uh, close quote. I think that's spot on. Um, and, then, and then towards the end of the psalm, notice what it says. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, we give you thanks from generation to generation. We will recount your praise. So there, despite their circumstances, despite the fact their temple has been desecrated and their city destroyed, um, just like Psalm 74. Um, yes, they pray these imprecatory psalms according to uh, this understanding of what's going on. They're not behind the times. They're not like their neighbors who were savages and brutes. We know that uh, from history. The Assyrians and others <clears throat> treated their prisoners and captives brutally. Um, they're praying that because they're ahead of the time. They're several thousand years ahead of the time. <laughs> they're, they're praying that because this, this whole period, as we've been taught by our Reformed biblical theologians, especially Gerhardus Voss and, and, and Meredith G. Klein, their whole period is one huge typological 
intrusion into history. So when we read some of these statements, we need to read them as understanding that these are prayers that will be prayed with perfect pristineness and purity at the end of the age after the second coming of Christ. And we get a little, sha- we get a little shadow of that ahead of time. <laughs> Questions? Because <laughs> I can see your faces. You're going, oh, okay, I've never heard that before. Uh, you know what? I, I really am curious to have a little discussion before the kiddies come because uh, I think this is the answer to the gainsaying that we experience from our secular culture. The Hebrew Bible does not lead to, well, maybe misinterpreted, but a right reading of the Hebrew Bible does not lead to violence and bigotry and uh, a thousand other sins, okay? Um, We have to make this cohere according to um, theological category that coheres with all scripture, and I think this is the answer um, to help people see. That's right. So you notice when I pray, I often appeal to, to Exodus 34. God, you are compassionate, kind, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. Full stop, but next breath, you are the thrice holy God who does not wink at sin. You can go to hell for shoplifting. If you don't repent of it. Right? So yeah, I mean... The Westminster Confession teaches there are some sins that are more egregious than others, and surely that's the case. That's just a reflection of the Bible's teaching. Not all, all sins are wicked and deserving of God's punishment, but some are more wicked than others. Okay, that's a biblical teaching. But you can go to hell for shoplifting a piece of bubble gum if you don't repent from it. Just read Augustine's Confessions, you know. Right. 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 So the word there for faithful, you may have heard if you uh, read any Jewish novels or have any familiarity with the, with the Jewish um, people, is chassid, chassid. So, uh, so this is the chassidim, so, who are often the ones who like, are most rigorous about uh, applying in today's Judaism you know, all the strictures of the law with the tassels and the, the, uh, you know, keeping the mezuzahs on the doorposts you know, with the commandments in them and that kind of thing. Because as one of my Jewish professors said, they're so superstitious. You know, he's at Hebrew University. And so when Hezbollah what does throw missiles over or whatever, you know what they do? Uh, it's not necessarily a response to true faith. They run around and they fix all the mezuzahs at the university, get them in, out of disrepair and to repair. You know mezuzahs, you a loser. And, uh, and I'm not making fun of them. That's, that's what he you know, says, and that's the little running joke. So... Um, of course, you know, it must have been a horror to them. To, I, think, I think the way to answer the question is, of course it must have been a horror to them to, you know, Psalm 74 is even more stark about the bodies laying, you know, there in, you know, the remnants of, of the destruction. This is shorter, less so. But if you read those two together, 
you know, and who knows whether they're composed shortly after or some long distance afterwards. You know, I mean, they're struggling with what we would call PTSD. You know, I mean, they've seen the horror of it all. Um, but at the end of the day, see, the problem with it is Israel is judged not just for individual behavior, but because they're nationally elected. They're judged on the basis of a national election and a failure. And so they were warned. And so, you know, um, and time and time again as a whole, by and large. And even, even the most holy Hasidim were the most holy, right? I mean, think of King David. Um, you know, so, um, so yeah, it's, it's important to them that, you know, this conquering people, namely probably the Babylonians, 587, 586, have come in and ransacked the temple and probably run men at least, maybe women and children, uh, through with swords and, um, and extirpated a whole group of people. They left some behind. Um, I think we have to be really careful. So if this is helpful, think in the bigger theological evaluation, they got what they deserved. Moses warned them beforehand. You know, or back to the comment. This, this reminds us of the gravity of sin. You know, we're used to saying, well, sure, that person with that egregious sexual sin, they deserve to go to hell. Or that person that, you know, uh, lamboozled that money illegally, you know. Of course, that's horrible. Think of all the lies. Well, so do shoplifters. <laughs> so does every kid who tells a, a, a little white lie. Well, I had an ethics professor say once, there are no little white lies. There's only bottom of the barrel lies at the end of the day. Right? So... I, I see what you're saying, and I think that's fair, fair, you know, pushback. But on the other hand, um, God warned them all the way back, you know, uh, in the Pentateuch, that, you know, first five books, that um, if you disobey these stipulations, you disobey these laws, you will be punished. And you will lose your fecundity, your fertility, your agricultural prosperity. But the worst punishment is you will get exiled. And what is exile ultimately a type of? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So see, ultimately, this should stand as a warning to them that the wages of sin is death. Right. From the covenant. And when they thought about that cutting ritual, what would their minds have gone back to because there was a cutting ritual that happened just prior to that? That's right. So the theology of circumcision, if you can believe there is such a thing, there is, is they thought, should have thought of that as not just a sign of inclusion, Right? but also a potential sign of cutting off from one's people, being excluded from the covenant community if you don't obey out of gratitude. And, and, and then their mind should have gone back to this paradigmatic um, framing event when, remember, God, is, is Abram asleep or awake when that happens? 
That's right. And, uh, and then the fire pot passes between the, between the pieces with, you know, talk about birds of prey, covenant curses. Those are a symbol of covenant curses are hovering round about. Well, who goes through the pieces? Right. So who ultimately takes the curse of the covenant? Yeah. Embodied in the person and work of for his own sin, right? No, because he was without sin. So this is the unilateral transaction of a love so deep that he's willing to become a curse on our behalf and even take the curse of the exile, if you will, right? That's what our confession says. He descended into hell. How do you understand? He didn't literally descend into hell. Uh, So properly interpreted, the creedal statement has always been understood as he went to hell on our behalf in the sense of taking all the wrath and judgment of God for which we were deserving. So think about it, Abram. Abram goes up the mountain to sacrifice his only beloved son, right? And then he casts that knife into his chest, right? No. He said, now stay your hand uh, because uh, I provided the ram, you know, right? And now I know you fear God. Christ saw no standing of the hand. If you will, figuratively, he looked into the heaven and he saw all the wrath being poured out from the Father on, you know, upon him. There was no staying of the hand for Christ, right? And I think you're absolutely right. These are the wages of sin. So, uh, you know, sometimes, be honest with you, I reflect, I go, do people in this church think that I spend too much time on death? <laughs> but, you know, at the end of the day, it helps you understand the gospel better, doesn't it? Right. So. All right, other questions? Yeah, all right. Let me close us in prayer. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. And uh, thank you for um, the beautiful portrayal of your gospel. Thank you for your wonderful plan with Paul. We uh, marvel and we say how rich and profound and beautiful are your ways, even when we don't understand them completely. And, uh, Father, we pray that you would seal them to our hearts, that knowing the wages of sin is death, that you would help us to flee from sin, uh, but also help us to flee to the cross. And even as we hear these little voices singing now, we pray that you would rise, uh, raise up the next generation to believe these things with their whole heart, soul, and mind as well. Uh, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for your attention. Good discussion. So next week, I'm not doing Sunday school. Pastor Ferrari will. But uh, Catherine graciously already printed out what will be the week after this, Psalm 80. So if you want to pick one of those up, you're welcome to that.